This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of Harvesting Nature. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to Harvest in Nature Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest today. Steve has joined us, or is joining us, from up in Corey's neck of the woods, up in uh, sunny Pennsylvania, uh, which is probably, I bet you the weather's really nice up there this time of year in comparison to South Florida, where it's kind of hot and humid. Um, what's it, uh, how's the temp outside? It can be pretty nice here. It's uh, pretty hot and humid here now, too. I don't know what it hit today, but 90 has been pretty common lately. Yeah, I think that's consistent with what we're getting down here. It's been pretty much raining every day, though, unfortunately, keeping uh, keeping us off the water. Um, so, Steve, I kind of introduced you. <laughs> I introduced you a little bit, uh, but go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, I'm uh, living in northwestern Pennsylvania in the same county that I was born in, but I haven't always been here. I... Uh, did my college in the Boston area. I lived for three years in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, in North Carolina for a few years, Washington, D.C., before I, uh, I came back to this area. And uh, it's good to be here. Uh, the hunting is good here. We don't have the biggest deer in the world, but uh, but we have good hunting, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. I haven't always been an outdoor writer. I really learned to write by writing advertising. I worked for 24 years for a catalog company where I was uh, writing advertising. And uh, that that did a lot to help me to be able to communicate through the written word. And uh, and so, you know, that's what I've been doing for about the last 15 years. That's awesome. So I guess, Steve, the main topic 
we kind of want to talk about uh, today is is CWD or, or commonly, or I guess less commonly, no, chronic wasting disease. CWD would be the, the acronym for it. Um, pretty popular topic in the, the hunting and outdoor community and even conservation community just because uh, people are trying to figure out what's going on. And, um, you know, as we discussed a little bit, you, you've been studying it, so and providing some some written content about it and talking to some scientists and doctors about it uh so i'm i'm curious to pick your brain and and hopefully learn what you know and we can share that with our listeners on here today so um i guess as as best as you describe it throughout what what would you call cwd outside like the textbook definition that we commonly hear well, uh, chronic wasting disease is a neuropathological disease. It's a disease of the nervous system. Uh, it's difficult to diagnose. Uh, There's some uh, people who say that they've come up with a test for it, but uh, I, don't, I don't know really what that test involves yet. I don't know how reliable it is. Uh, most people believe, and I think where the science is right now, is that it's not something that can be discovered in a in a living animal uh that probably if that hasn't changed already i think some good news is that it will change fairly soon um chronic wasting disease has a number of um i guess we could call them relatives uh if you're around back in the 1980s you probably heard about mad cow disease in england mm -hmm. and uh that was uh basically what chronic wasting disease is in deer. The good thing about mad cow disease was that it, it was in a, a herd of, uh, of, it was in herds of cattle and cattle are confined, confined to a pasture, confined to a barn or a ranch. Uh, and we don't lose them. They don't run off. You know, we can, we can kind of keep track of them. And, uh, <clears throat> What they did, they killed a lot of cattle during that time in England in order to get rid of it. Uh, but one question was, where did it come from in the cattle? Well, there's been other species that have had it for a long, long, long time. Uh, sheep have had it. In sheep, it's called scrapie. And that name comes from uh, the sheep's habit of uh, scraping itself against trees or fence posts or rocks or anything that it can. Uh, apparently it, it causes some itching, but, uh, then of course it, it gets, uh, it loses hair and it gets sores and, uh, pretty soon they're so, um, uh, debilitated that, that they simply die. But we've, we've known about scrapie since the 1700s. So we're approaching 300 years of, uh, of familiarity with this broad disease. It's called transmissible spongiform encephalopathy transmissible because it can be communicated from one creature to another spongiform because it, cre it creates a uh, sponge effect in a brain uh, or any any nervous tissue uh, and you can imagine what you'd be like if you had a lot of holes in your brain you wouldn't function very well and i don't so think i want to imagine that. <laughs> yeah. and, and so uh, you know, and, and that's really why it's incurable. Once that, once that, uh, uh, that brain tissue is gone, you know, it can't be recovered. So 
-mm. If there's going to be a cure, it has to happen very early in the progress of the disease before it causes uh, brain damage. So we've known about Scrapie for almost 300 years. Um, there's been a, um, an interesting story along these lines as to where it infected humans. In the 1950s, there was a population in Papua New Guinea, uh, which is part of an island just north of Australia. And uh, there was a, a tribe, very primitive tribe there, that was cannibalistic. And uh, they weren't cannibals in the classic sense that we think of from, you know, the old Tarzan movies or whatever, where cannibals would kill and eat their enemies. These people would eat their loved ones. It was a tribal ritualistic thing that, uh, that they would, uh, they would do out of respect for the person. Mm -hmm. Very, very different. I, I can't really get my, my brain around that. But uh, uh, one of the greetings, if they liked a person, would be, I eat you. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you'd be good enough to eat, uh, in other words. <laughs> and so somehow the um, human version of this was introduced to that area. And uh, probably around the early 1900s. And in the 1950s, someone went there and began to study it. And uh, when they got these people to stop cannibalizing their loved ones, they basically wiped out the disease. It's, it's almost unheard of there now. Uh, but the human form is called Kritzfeld-Jakob disease. Kritzfeld mm -hmm. and Jakob, a couple of uh, German doctors that discovered it in people. And in people, it has several different variants. Uh, and this disease that was in Papua New Guinea was one of them. They called that one Kuru. Uh, I can't remember the meaning of that that word. I think it I think it had something to do with uh, being dizzy. They called it. The person was disoriented uh, who had it. Um, so anyway, uh, in the 1950s, someone began to study it there. And uh, it wasn't until the 1980s that anyone connect, made the connection of the prion to this disease. Now, the prion is a made-up word for a misshapen protein. And uh, it stands for a proteinaceous infectious uh, I, uh, material. I forget the last, uh, the third word in that phrase. But uh, the, the word protein is, or prion is basically made up. It's an abnormal protein. The interesting thing about proteins is they're not a living thing. They're an organic thing because living things pre uh, produce them. But they have no DNA. They have no RNA, which according to modern science, you need something, at least RNA, if not DNA, to be able to reproduce. And so the big mystery has been, how do these prions replicate themselves if they don't have any, any, uh, uh, anything encoded in them for reproduction? And there's research going on now to try to prove that. Uh, one interesting thing to me was the first article that I wrote about this 
uh, I mentioned that uh, that the prion is not um, conclusively been shown to be the cause, the, inf the infectious agent of this disease. Man, oh man, I, I got, I just got skewered about that. Uh, one biologist told me that uh, that it's it's common knowledge. Every credible scientist believes this. I could send you hundreds of articles to show that uh, that they they know for sure that the prion causes the disease. So I said, send me ten. And so he said, okay, I'll send you some. I don't, I don't remember how many he sent me, but I began to click on the links that he gave me, and in the first or second paragraph of every single one of them. It said, no one knows how the prion behaves as the infectious agent. It's just that they believe it, it does. And so probably 90, 95% of research money goes toward discovering, trying to de determine how this prion replicates itself in, in a person's brain. And they haven't figured that out yet. There's some theories. Uh, that uh, I'm not sure I understand completely, uh, but uh, even if it does, it uh, it's a completely different type of organism, infectious organism, than anything we've ever discovered. And so uh, um, the more likely uh, thing is that if uh, if it's not the prion, and if it could be something of a more conventional cause, such as a bacteria or a virus, uh, we would make some ground toward trying to figure out how to stop it. I don't so really think first, we're ever going to cure a person who has it uh, unless we can find it very, very early. And, and it is a bacteria and, and it can be knocked out then. So I, I really find it interesting. So I was, I was looking at the, um, the instances, the uh, cases in Papua New Guinea and to, to go further detailed is is that the ritual was they would eat the brain of their loved ones after they passed away. And I, I think a lot of the modern theory of like where the prions lie or in the brain, in the spinal cord, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of the modern thought even even amongst deer. and um, Well, it's it, uh, it does concentrate in certain tissues, the brain, the spinal cord, certain glandular, uh, organs, uh, I think the, uh, the tonsils, uh, the, um, uh, there, there are glands that, uh, that where, where it would concentrate. Um, I think if you kill a deer and it gets tested for CWD, uh, they would take out some throat glands and, and, and test those. Um, but they're basically testing for the prion. Um, the interesting thing about um, about the uh, bacterial theory is that uh, there's this neuropathologist, Dr. Frank Bastian. He's down in Louisiana. Currently, he's at the University of New Orleans. Uh, I spoke with no, him. That's, that's, uh, that's my alma mater. Oh, is it? Yep. G good place then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, he's been at Tulane. He's been at... Uh, at the at, uh, I think, Louisiana State University, but he's currently at the University of New Orleans. And he really has, he's kind of retired from, uh, but he's he's involved in research now exclusively in, in research. And uh, 
and he said that he used to do a lot of autopsies and a lot of the people that he did autopsies of uh, had died from um, neurodegenerative diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's disease or other dementias, Kurzfeld-Jakob disease. And, uh, and in doing autopsies, he discovered a certain bacteria that, uh, that caught his eye. And he began to look for that bacteria in every case of uh, uh, every one of his autopsies. And uh, he found that bacteria in about 15% of the people who died from Alzheimer's disease, or at least they thought it was Alzheimer's disease. I kind of was a little bit uh, intrigued by this because my mother passed away three, a little over three years ago from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, she was 87 years old. And so, why was that bacteria present? It wasn't present in other autopsies that he did. And so he came to the conclusion that 15% of the Alzheimer's deaths were misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's and were really Kurzfeld-Jakob disease. And, uh, and he, his thesis is that the prion is a marker of the disease, but it's caused by the spiroplasma bacteria. Now, people talk about prions as though, you know, they're sort of indestructible. You can't burn them. You can't uh, get rid of them with an autoclave. Uh, they're just very, very durable. But so is this bacteria. Um, and so this bacteria has a, uh, an ability to kind of coat itself with something. They call it an amyloid. And you get these clusters of bacteria and and uh, uh, and and prions that are identifiable as as an amyloid, a, a cluster. Um, but if it includes the spiro the spiroplasma, then uh, you know you have to ask why it's there, and uh, is it just innocent in this whole process? And he believes no, it's not innocent. Uh, the problem came about when. Uh, people, not not him, but started making predictions about curing the disease and uh, based on his work. And, you know, he's very humble about it. He's not, he says he's mostly interested in in uh, human forms of, of transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And he's most interested in the food supply, the, the animals that can come down with TSEs. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of where his research uh, focuses. Uh, if he's right, and if he can be proven to be right, um, his work will apply to any species. It may need to be uh, fine-tuned, but if TSE diseases are caused by a, a bacteria, uh, then major steps can be taken to address whatever species has this. You know, there, there are a lot of species that have um, TSE diseases besides sheep and cows um, and, uh, uh, and humans. Uh, mink can get them. Uh, some of the exotic ungulate animals from Africa have, have known to get it. So uh, if they can figure out what causes this, 
then the next step is to figure out, you know, how to stop it, where to, you know, what to do to cure it. Certainly, we can cure it in clinical settings where people go to the doctor, people spend time in, in hospitals mm -hmm. or nursing homes. Um, and it can be, uh, we can get rid of it completely in, in that way. We can probably get rid of it completely in, in barnyards, wherever sheep and, and, uh, um, and cattle are. Yeah. yeah domestic, domestic animals that we're kind of controlled environment. Yeah. I see we where can you're get, going. We could get rid of it in deer in, in the, uh, um, enclosures where, you know, deer farmers and deer researchers, uh, have, have penned deer, but, uh, getting rid of it in a wild population is going to be a whole nother challenge. Yeah. I, I mean, especially like you're looking at, it's something that we note to affect, uh, moose, elk, and all species yeah. of deer in North America. Like, that's basically the entire North American continent would have to be treated in some regard to either prevent or, or cure. Yeah. Now, um, they say the prion lives in the soil. Lives is really the wrong word because it's not a living thing. Uh, it can be absorbed into a plant and that the deer can eat that plant and then acquire the prion. And hypothetically, at least if the prion is the, is the infectious agent, then they can come down with it. But if the spiroplasma is consumed along with the prion, then how do we know which, which it is? And uh, I think Dr. Bastion yeah, is, could very well be on to something. Such, man. It's a, it's a big thing to wrap, wrap your head around to think. I mean, I definitely understand, you know, you have the association of the the clustering and the bacteria and the, the, the prion, um, sort of together. And, and that's, I find it very interesting that through autopsies, he's, he's revealed the presence of it. Um, man, I could, <laughs> if I was a, if I was a, uh, uh, a neuroscientist with a, a lot of money and the ability to study us on uh, animals, I think it, it would be an interesting. I mean, it couldn't hurt to go down that road of research just to see. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I think. Um, the uh, There is another uh, neuropathologist at Yale University, a woman named Laura Manuelides. Uh, she is researching a viral cause to it. And uh, we know from what's going on in our world today how tough a virus is to, to beat. Uh, but uh, uh, Dr. Bastian told me he respects her work. Um, he thinks it's, uh, it's a bacteria. A bacterial cause is the infectious agent. But uh, he wants to see her work progress as well. It's just that all the focus is on prions, uh, mostly because... Uh, it was associated with uh, transmissible spongiform disease back in the uh, uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, there was uh, there have been two Nobel prizes given on this. Uh, one to the guy that researched it in Papua New Guinea that, that researched the Kuru, and the other was given in the 1990s 
to a doctor to a uh, researcher from uh, I think it was the University of San Francisco. Um, he had identified the prion and he named the prion and he associated the prion with the TSE disease and, and won a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, but uh, he doesn't yet, you know, can't make a, a case that the prion is the transmissible infectious agent. When I was reading, um, so there was a lot of, of tests or there were some tests recently um, in, in 2017 where they, in a clinical controlled environment, uh, they had the monkeys consume, uh, I think it was meat or something that they knew was, was infected, infected, or, uh, I guess that's a correct word to use either for bacteria prion or what, whichever theory that, that term suits it. But, um, and they were, they identified that, oh yeah, the monkeys then developed the symptoms and blah, blah, blah. And, it sort of had a lot of support for a while and then it was determined like, well, maybe it, it wasn't as controlled as what we thought or we're still well, not sure. A lot of the research is done in hamsters and mice because their life cycles go much faster. Uh, you can't really study a lot in, in humans and because humans, it's, it's a, uh, it takes a long time to get, this disease. Um, in fact, before they discovered the prion, they put this disease into a category of what they called slow viruses. And it might take 30 years once you get the virus for that virus to become uh, exhibited in the, uh, in the patient. Uh, you just can't study a disease if it takes that long. It, it would be the career of the doctor to study one generation of the disease. Uh, mm -hmm. So they'd, they've been able to infect hamsters and rats, mice, um, monkeys to some degree, or, or uh, chimpanzees. Uh, they've been able to give uh, TSE diseases to other animals in order to study them. Uh, but uh, uh, that's a slow, slow process. You know, people talk about solving the problem with CWD, they, they always go to the, um, put the blame on the deer ranches where people buy and sell deer and they transfer them, you know, all over the country. And certainly, certainly that's been a major way and maybe the primary way, at least in the early years, how the disease was uh, transported from one part of the country to another. Uh, they, uh, they're watching that very closely now. But even if we got rid of the disease in penned deer, uh, we still have the problem of free-ranging deer and, and what it's going to do to our, to our deer population. And it's important to solve because, you know, hunting is the, the primary way of wildlife management in North America. Uh, we have a system of wildlife management that very few people really, non-hunters and many hunters, don't understand. If, if uh, let's say deer became such a low population because of extremely high infectivity and nobody dared hunt them, and so 90% of your hunters would quit hunting, uh, it'd be devastating to all wildlife in North America because hunters' dollars is where most of the uh, 
money comes from to to manage our wild game, uh, not yeah. just our wild game populations, but everything, turtles, songbirds, everything. It, it comes mean, primarily trail, from deer hunters. Trail upkeep and, you know, access points and, and everything. Oh, sure. All the conservation Habitat dollars. Habitat management. Yeah, just I, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because I, I meant to say when I talked about the 1980s mad cow disease, uh, they determined that mad cow disease came from sheep that were infected with it because they would take what they called downer animals, animals that would stumble and fall and be sick, and they would basically uh, convert them to food supply, high-protein food supply for other other domesticated animals. Uh, and so was basically, it bone, bone meal? I yeah, think is the, including the bone meal. Yep. Um, they, uh, they would feed, in other words, they would feed pellets made from dead sheep to the cattle in England. And if those pellets were infected, that's where the cattle got it. Uh, so, you know, one big question is, can it trend, can it jump species? Can it, you know, come from, uh, go from deer to people? I don't, I would not eat a deer that I, that I knew was infected with chronic wasting disease, yeah. or even that I suspected I, was. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the patient zero to begin with and take that chance. But it's also too, you know, um, I think about it from an agriculture perspective. Like I, I come from a big agriculture family and I think about, um, a lot of, you know, the, the trouble that mad cow disease caused and a lot of the concern and questions and stuff that went on in the eighties and nineties. And you look at now, and I think one of the, the biggest sort of statements is if it was to jump, from deer and start to affect our cattle population, like cattle being a big export out of the United States. I think the European union has already voiced concerns. Like, look, like if this becomes a problem, like we're going to shut down imports from the United States. And I, I've even heard it. I haven't confirmed it, but I've heard it said that even things like hay or grass or some grain feeds that are associated in areas that, that CWD is present in deer that they, they're, the European Union is preventing the import of that into Europe just for the chance that, you know, like we talk about, either the prion or the bacteria or, or the virus being present, and then livestock in Europe uh, consuming that, and it jumping species there just based off of a, of a consumable, not necessarily a direct animal-to-animal uh, -animal transmission. So I, I think that's, a, that's an outside concern you know, a high level concern as well. Well, it certainly is an issue or could become an issue. Um, if there's a high pop, a high, a high incidence of chronic wasting disease in an area where there's uh, a lot of farming, uh, I would be a concerned farmer, uh, mm -hmm. about deer introducing it to, to my herd. So, um, it's, this is going to be a tough nut to crack. No, no matter how it's, uh, no matter what the infectious agent is. And, um, I, I wanted to ask you sort of, um, to go back, like what, what got you curious, what motivated you to sort of just, just begin looking into CWD. And, you know, like I well, said earlier, it's, it's always been an interesting topic for me. So I, I, I look, 
not that I like talking about it. I, I find it fascinating to discuss it because it, I think that that's part of the part of the solution is the education and we, we have to have more conversations about it. Yeah. What got me interested first, um, I mentioned the meeting that the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture and the Pennsylvania Game Commission had to bring outdoor writers in to, uh, to learn a little bit more about this and maybe help to get the message out from whatever we learned on that on that day. So I kind of went to that meeting out of a sense of duty, you know, thinking, well, you know, I ought to know about this and maybe I'll get some something for a newspaper column or two out of it. And uh, I at least ought to be informed so I can talk about it intelligently. Uh, and I kind of thought at that time, that's probably about all. Well, then uh, February of 2019, when that, that press con- conference happened, it was on the the capital Pennsylvania capital steps. Um, the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting magazine uh, called me and and said, uh, "Can you look into this and get a story? Maybe talk to this uh, Dr. Frank Bastian and see you know what you can find out." And he said, uh, "Can you give me an article by tonight?" And I said, "Man, I'm not that fast. I can't." <laughs> I can't give you an article, but I said, I, I will, I will give him an email and ask him if I can talk to him. And I figured it'd be a few days. And he said, uh, call me tonight. And I thought, Oh boy, I just, I just fell in the pool. I'm in. So (laughs) I didn't have any time to put any questions together. Uh, I had the editor of deer and deer hunting emailing me questions I'm I'm on the phone with this guy. I'm trying to scribble down everything he says and and also get get the questions from the editor. I probably was on the phone with him for a couple of hours and then I I put together an article and I I emailed it to him I think right around midnight. And uh by seven o'clock in the morning it was on the Deer and Deer Hunting magazine's website. And of course, then it went to Facebook and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm the dumbest outdoor writer that ever came down the pike. How could I be so stupid as to believe that it that it's not the prion, which 90, probably 95 or more percent of the researchers believe, you know, and I, I didn't do anything except let Dr. Bastian speak for himself. That that was my aim. I mean, who am I? I'm mm-hmm. I'm not a science guy. You know, I mean. I don't want to pretend I'm an expert on chronic wasting disease. I'm not. Um, I'm fairly well read on it. Uh, I intend to become more well read on it. Um, but uh, I can tell you this, the the deer biologists don't all know what they think they know about it um, because they're not they're not researchers. They're taking what they read and trying to make sense of it. Uh, and some of what they read could be wrong. If it's not caused by the prion, then uh, everybody's got a lot to learn. So that's kind of how I, I got into it. And uh, I'm kind of in with both feet now, uh, trying to read as much as I can. One of the criticisms that uh, that Dr. Bastian uh, suffered was that... Uh, uh, that he's a medical doctor. What could he possibly know about a deer disease? Well, 
nobody in the deer world knows much about it. There, there are no researchers uh, that are studying neuropathology in deer. Um, these TSE diseases are common to a lot of species, and so the deer world is going to have to rely on people outside their world if they're going to be able to ever cure it. Um, so I'm just kind of the point of view that we need to be able to learn from one another. If the deer world doesn't talk to the larger medical world, I don't think we're going to accomplish much except uh, draw our maps and our lines about CWD zones and and try to manage the uh, the spread of the disease. Uh, but ultimately, you know, deer, they're going to cross state lines. Um, in fact, I, I live four miles from the New York state line, and I actually shot the nicest buck I ever shot uh, right on the, it was a New York buck, but it, I shot him one step away from the Pennsylvania line. And he was following five does that were already in Pennsylvania. So these deer, they're walking back and forth every day. Yeah, they they don't care about state lines or jurisdiction no. or lines on the map. It's it's all all their world. Yeah. So I I, I definitely want to I want to highlight what you said just a few sentences ago, and and it it rings true in my head that we, you have we've talked about sort of three different theories and without you know the 100 percent accuracy that it's that it's either of the three it's hard to sit there and be like i'm gonna dismiss you know i'm gonna dismiss two of the three or one of the three or any right. of that until until there's a, a way forward it's like why not focus equal attention on all three topics because if we don't have an answer you can't exclude others that may become a potential answer. You're making a really strong point because when people are, when, when researchers looking for grant money, they have to send in applications and they have to have people uh, agree to give them money to do the research. But this money is not awarded in any objective way. Uh, maybe somebody wants to give money to another person because they're doing their research at a, at a university that they like. I mean, that could be the reason why somebody gets a grant. Um, there are a lot of reasons. I, I, I won't go into much detail on this, but my, my daughter is a surgeon. And uh, anytime I'm writing something sciencey, you know, I run it by her so that I make sure I'm not, you know, saying something stupid. Uh, and so, um, she has a little bit of research experience when she was in uh, when she was in medical school. She was on a research team running on a certain project and they went to a conference to present their research. And there was another research team that presented the exact same thing with results that my daughter's team said aren't possible. And so, you know, there's there's not necessarily honesty among scientists either uh i'm reading uh i've read a couple of books that that dr bastian recommended to me one of them was on mainly on the kuru in uh, papua new guinea um but uh you know scientists aren't always right and we tend to think they are uh but uh if if everybody thinks it's the prion 
then that's where all the money's going to go. We need to open our eyes a little bit. And, you know, someone said to me, well, Frank Bastian has been working on this for 30 years and he hasn't figured it out yet. And you know what? He'd been working on it pretty much with himself and a small team of people that he pays. And uh, mm -hmm. everybody else is working on it with millions and millions of dollars of grants. And they haven't figured it out either. Um, the Nobel Prize for the prion connection to TSE diseases was awarded in 1997. That's already 23 years ago. And the doctor that, that found that figured that out in uh, the 1980s. So we're actually into the same time frame, and we don't know how prions are infectious yet. So well, I, I wanna, agree. I, 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 I'm not willing to say I think it's the bacteria or I think it's mm -hmm. a virus or I think it's the prion. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not willing to say that. I have no way to base any of that on. I'm just thinking that yeah. we ought to be looking in a broader scale than just one thing. I, I agree with you. And, and I want to point out too. So I, you know, I was involved, uh, in academic research, uh, during my undergrad time. And it's like one other very important thing is the fact that, you know, like you mentioned the funding, you're seeking grants from basically whoever will support your topic, mold it, shape it as they, they also want to see it too. But at the end of it, you're defending your research and you're presenting most of the time it's going in a peer reviewed journal and, Peer-reviewed journals are not always fair. Like, there's bias that exists. I mean, you think about the theory of, of tectonic plates. The guy who came up with the theory of tectonic plates was laughed out of the scientific community for decades until finally mm -hmm. they came back and were like, oh, yeah, it, uh, it looks like you're right. And that was like, you know, 30 <laughs> or 40 years after the fact. They're like, yeah, yeah. You, you've, you've excluded me from this community for so long only to come back around and tell me, that I was correct. So it, it's hard to say, you know, scientists are people too. We're not perfect. There's, yeah. you know, socio behaviors that exist between them and, and everybody has their own thoughts and theories. So here at Harvest in Nature, we're known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. There are smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. I'm, I'm with you on it. I'm not a scientist either. I don't claim to be, you know, uh, but I think that it's important to look at everything unless we have like solid 100% proof that we can rule out the other parts of it. Most of the, the peer-reviewed journals, when they talk about a, uh, a TSE disease and are looking for evaluating somebody's, somebody's research, uh, they often bring in a prion expert in the peer review process. What does that tell you? That, it tells you that, that the, guy the will say, is, yeah, yep. yeah. Yep, they're bringing, they're deliberately bringing in some bias. So it's, it's, uh, 
scientific research and one of the reasons why you know things happen so slowly in in uh in science and i okay so you know we've established that both you and i are not scientists um so sort of our motivation behind the cwd is is awareness and education mm-hmm. um and and i'm guessing you're you're at the same page i am with that and sort of that an, another underlying motivator for you um as well please go ahead sorry i i just want to say one uh i keep my mind keeps going back to the criticisms i wish i would have printed that and had it in front of me because uh you know i was uh i was i mean they tried to destroy me on facebook when i published that article uh by the next day i was answering emails and i i had i i saved this i i should have printed it out so i'd have it in front of me but uh you know, somebody told me that Dr. Bastian has never uh, even had a paper published on this. Well, I kind of thought they must be right, but they weren't right at all. Dr. Bastian has been published in peer-reviewed journals many times. Uh, so, you know, it's not like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he he has a theory. Uh, he's found a way to to grow the bacteria. Uh, he's found a way to infect, uh, animals with it. Um, one of these days, I think he's going to, I mean, if, if the prion doesn't play a role, uh, in causing it, it certainly is the marker and it maybe is what does the destruction of the brain tissue. But if the prion is a marker or a product of the, of the bacteria, we need to, we need to take that step backwards and, and hit it at the yeah. source uh, or yeah. the virus. You know, I don't, cause I mean, it, it, I, I, I see, I see where you're coming from with that as well. Like looking at it, the prion not being something with RNA or DNA, like it's not living bacteria, you know, or a virus being something that's, you know, quote unquote living. So it's, it's able to be managed or killed or, you know, the body develops antibodies or, you know, whatever, uh, biological process that happens to prevent the, the spread or the infection. Yeah. That's one hundred percent it. If, if we know the prions not living, it's hard to say that it's continuing to move forward and act as a living yeah. thing or, you know, uh, maybe there's something else there we don't know as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're a long ways from knowing everything, despite what uh, the popular uh, messages uh, that go out to the average person through places like Facebook. You know, we mm-hmm. there's still a lot more out there we don't know than what we do know. And I think so. Um, in in browsing some of your your articles and in conversation, I guess I I do want to highlight. So uh, looking at specifically towards hunters um, to sort of understand, you know, the signs and symptoms of, of an animal with chronic wasting disease. Obviously, you know, the majority of people listening to this are going to know what a healthy deer looks like versus an unhealthy deer. And a lot of times, you know, as we said, the progression of this disease takes or sickness takes so long, excuse me, that it, it may not, it may not be showing signs, but still be present in the animal when you harvest it. And I think a lot of state agencies are recommending, recommending testing 
um, of meat if if you know they're coming from a chronic uh, uh, area. Sorry, I might lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, an area with high rates of, of CWD. Go ahead. There's sorry. a lot to be done to try to address this issue, even apart from you know what really causes it. Um, there was an article that appeared in Deer and Deer Hunting's mag magazine's website just uh, must have been two or three days ago uh, that uh, based on deer social structure, uh, does would be the ones most likely to carry it and infect uh, from one animal to another. So if a doe is healthy enough to breed, but has the uh, has the disease, in licking and grooming her fawns or her sisters or, you know, the, the way that the, the doe society uh, behaves, then, then they're going to infect more animals. And so it might be smart to use your doe tags. And, and uh, the more does we kill, the more uh, not only are we benefiting the habitat and keeping the deer population in line with that, but we're disrupting that social structure where it can be easily and, and maybe a little more quickly uh, communicated. Of course, now, you know, bucks will do grooming too in, in their bachelor groups, but, uh, you know, not to the degree that, that does do. So, uh, you know, there are some important things that deer biologists can, can help us with. Um, you know, what I said earlier doesn't mean to isolate them and say they don't know anything. They they can contribute a lot. They, their main charge is to keep this thing from spreading until we know how to get rid of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a team effort, sort of, uh, as we call it in the military, it's all hands on deck. You need, yeah. you need everybody participating, you know, from the hunter to the biologist to the neuroscientist to, you know, uh, the funding sources to the, you know, the action officers at the ground level. Like, everybody's got to be on board and willing I think willing with an open mind, but, and specifically, like you mentioned the use of doe tags and, and helping out populations. And, and that theory has been around and been supported long enough of, of the management of does helps lead to management of good population of, of deer. So um, it's good to see that as a, a theory as well. But I, I, you know, I'm curious also in the theories that I've seen of, you know, uh, feeders, salt licks, those other places where, where you're getting a lot of interaction, you know, like you said, social a lack of social distancing yeah, between yeah. deer. And, uh, yeah, social distancing is going to be important here, just like it is with COVID, you know, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I do want to talk, um, sort of, so for hunters that are specifically going out for meat and, a I do want to talk uh, if you have knowledge, like kind of where the infection lies and some concerned areas of within the animal that that we should be thinking about that maybe I wouldn't say discard, but set aside until you're you're getting that animal to the to the state for testing. Yeah, well, in Pennsylvania, the testing sites are in the CWD zones. Uh, where I live, there's been no incidences of CWD yet, so uh, there'd be no reason for me to take a deer into a CWD zone and drop off the head and, you know, wait for a report. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know 
exactly how it works uh, down there. I, I did notice, you know, we're right now going through the uh, uh, the uh, allocation of, of doe tags right now. Uh, the way we do it is uh, to buy a doe tag, each management unit has a certain number that's allotted and they go through round one, which is residents only. And then they go to round two, which includes non-residents. And then if there's any licenses left, residents can apply for a second doe tag in round three. And in some counties where they don't sell very fast, they can you know, apply for even more. I'm not sure if there's a limit in those counties of how many you can get. Uh, but I did notice in the wildlife management unit where we have most of the CWD, nobody's buying doe tags. Huh. The, well, that's there, that's an interesting correlation. There. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd have to say this is where I hunt. I don't, I don't travel to other counties or other areas to hunt. Uh, I'm afraid of, uh, of the disease, so I'm not going to shoot a doe, but you yeah. know, maybe it'd be better just to kill some and get more testing done. So we know how, how much it affects the population. I think that's, yeah, that's an important thing. So I, um, I am the opposite. I travel, um, almost exclusively to hunt. So I'm in Key West, Florida. So the nearest hunting area to me locally to hunt deer is four hours away. So, oh, so you don't hunt those little keyed uh, Florida Keys deer? <laughs> no, I'd get in a lot of trouble for that. Plus, there, yeah. there's not much meat on them, as I hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Florida's started taking a lot of precaution to prevent the transmission. You know, last year they came out the restrictions on uh, restrictions and reporting on bringing in uh, uh, skulls from other states. Um, I think there's a reporting requirement. California has when I, I lived in California previous to Florida and their, their, uh, restriction was set in place, uh, you know, back as early as 2015, I think even earlier than that. But, um, in order to curb, to curb that transmission and that's just bringing me as a hunter, bringing, uh, you know, an unprocessed deer skull in, like say I'm going to do a Euro mount on it, but the brain is still intact. And that sort of goes back to, so I think some of that earlier research of, of the, the prion, uh, you know, as the transmission point in the brain specifically. Um, and then also associated with that spinal spinal area and the glands and everything like that, that we mentioned earlier. You know, and in, in uh, I mentioned, I live, four miles from New York state line. And so I, I hunt deer in both Pennsylvania and New York, but, uh, I'm not allowed to bring a deer from New York into Pennsylvania, uh, because the state doesn't want the chance of anybody bringing chronic wasting disease in. However, there's no chronic wasting disease yet in New York. There's been a couple cases of it a number of years ago, which they caught, uh, I believe in a in an enclosure and uh, got rid of it. And, and currently there's nothing, there's no place in, in New York State that uh, is a active CWD area. Um, and yet I can't bring one in to Pennsylvania from New York, even though I could kill a deer in New York, have it die in Pennsylvania, drag it back to New York. Uh, <laughs> I actually wouldn't even be allowed to pick it up. I'd have to drag it back to New York to, and keep it in New York. 
and take it to a New York processor. Same with taxidermy. That's an interesting uh, conundrum, especially hunting on yeah, the state it line. It just like yeah. hops, if it hops that imaginary uh, line on the dirt there, it's going to yeah. it'll be in another state. Yeah. Huh. But you, you can't bring uh, a New York deer to Pennsylvania for taxidermy work. You've got to have it done in New York. Um, a couple years ago, I shot a buck in New York and, and uh, I took it to uh, um, a processor, a pretty good processor. And uh, I donated that, that, that one uh, to someone I, and I knew who got it. But the, the antlers I had to take to uh, a, a New York taxidermist. I had a euro mount made and I couldn't bring it to Pennsylvania until that was, until that was finished. So, um, a few years ago, well, a few, more than a few, I was in Texas and, uh, I was allowed to shoot three bucks and I shot three bucks and I boiled the skulls and I cleaned them up as well as I could and then shipped them to my taxidermist in Pennsylvania that he has, uh, dermisted beetles and they finished the job for me, but Mm -hmm. I don't believe I'd be allowed to do that now. Yeah, I mean, it's, times have definitely changed. Um, we were, it was what, 2015, we were coming back from uh, Wyoming uh, with a mule deer head and, and we're reading up on reporting requirements just right before travel, uh, like I mentioned, back into California and realized like, holy smokes, it's, uh, you know, we were within the state of Wyoming, but we had you know, the antlers poking out of a styrofoam cooler, you know, with the, the head in there on ice, because it was going to go to a taxidermist when we got back, uh, into California. And we quick, quickly realized like the major violation of law that we would be committing if we brought that in. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we quickly located a taxidermist in route and, uh, luckily he was able to meet with us, but yeah. Um, and I mean, is it a, is it a bad thing that, that we're that these kind of regulations are, are being affected i i don't know i think it's too early to see because some states have them and some states are not catching on yet one of my hunting buddies has an idea that i i'd like to see considered um he says uh he lives oh probably about the same distance from the new york line that i do and we hunt new york a little bit together and uh he thinks that there ought to be an approved body bag for the home processor so that the home processor could bring a deer across a state line in a sealed bag and uh, process it in your garage or wherever you do it and then have a uh, method of disposing of the uh, the, the non-edibles uh, that would be okay. That Because, you know, the home processor is the guy there maybe not as many as there used to be, but there are a lot of guys in Pennsylvania that want to butcher their own deer. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've butchered a lot of my own deer. Yeah. Same, far, same well, with me. Uh, but now I can't bring one in from New York, even though it's only four miles away. So you know, I, I, maybe that man, body bag cool idea, idea would be worth considering. The problem is, and I know they would say they, they can't trust hunters to all do the right thing. So, yeah. You know, they, they try to design the laws for the lowest common denominator rather than the, the guy that wants to be the responsible one. Yep, and that's unfortunate. And it, it, it only takes one instance of a, you know, 
of a spread or a infection point where there wasn't before for them to be like, Oh, look at Larry over there. He brought his deer yeah. in from New York. It's gotta be him. Whether it's yeah. true or not, like that's where the finger is going to point. That's right. Um, so I, I think it's a great idea. I just, yeah, I, I don't know how well it would be received at the administration level. Cause I could even see, right. you know, logistically in my mind, like, all right, I've got my bag. I know I'm going to New York. I know if I get a deer, I want to bring it back to Pennsylvania. So it could be a cooperation of between, uh, you know, fish and wildlife in New York and fish and wildlife in Pennsylvania to where when I go check my deer or, you know, I meet with the game warden or whoever, and he sees me zip tie and seal this bag. And then whenever I get back into Pennsylvania, into my hometown, I call up the warden there and he comes out and sees me physically open it. It's just like transporting a, you know, a truck and travel trailer. Like when they yeah. seal it that way, I could see it working that way, but it's just, it goes back to that lowest common denominator. Like who's yeah. going to be the guy that's going to try to create a counterfeit seal or, you know, for for whatever reason but yeah um that's that an interesting thought and i think i think that as maybe if we see restrictions tighten there may be some more room for conversation and as it starts to affect more of the the hunting community i think people will speak out and be like all right it's time to find alternate solutions yeah. um you know this because like I'm a big fan of the Euro Mountain. I, I don't always want to, you know, pay a taxidermist to to do all that work in a foreign place and then pay for shipping to come all the way back to me. If, especially if I have a friend, you know, who in the area who may be a local taxidermist or something like that that I, I want to send my work to. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to locate some information and really for the listeners on on sort of if you're your field doing field care and your processor and breaking down quarters or anything out in the field and you know you're in an area just uh what area of the animal to sort of avoid until you're able to get it tested and i'm i'm having some trouble finding a clear-cut answer well i i think the answer is based on uh who your game agency is what what state you're in um you know you could you could take a deer from a cwd area uh, quarter it, leave the spine there, uh, leave the head there, um, and, uh, and pack it out and, and basically take out with you anything that's not a, a, a tissue that has a high concentration of it. Um, but I don't know that every state wants you doing that. I don't know that they want you leaving that behind and letting other, you know, scavengers at it because, uh, you know, birds will take, uh, will pick on bones and fly a hundred miles and uh, let their droppings fall where they may. Uh, then that mm -hmm. might get into the vegetation if the, you know, that theory is correct. Uh, <laughs> you know, wildlife is wildlife. We don't control where it goes and what it does. Uh, but uh, anybody that that is interested in how to handle game in the area that they hunt probably ought to be talking to their game agency and checking exactly what they want to do. I, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. No. Uh, and, and I, 
I agree with that, and I'm, I'm seeing there's a there's a lot of states. There's some states where it's mandatory if you're in certain hunting areas, and there's some states where it's voluntary free if you're hunting within certain areas, and then there's other states where it's um, there's a charge, but it's still voluntary. And then some states are it's every deer. Yeah. Um, and I think the the testing types are varying as well. Um, you know, we mentioned the different glands. So lymph node glands are one. I know there's some that are testing it, um, like in the brain and uh, nervous. Uh, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. Near the brain, um, it looks like uh, lymph nodes are probably one of the most common ones. And then it still takes a little bit of time. And a lot of pe- uh, a lot of them are sort of having a disclaimer saying like, hey, just because we're testing this meat, the focus isn't necessarily meat quality or meat safety. It's the fact that we're we're trying to track this for biological reasons to, you know, for research and determine the spread of the disease, which is also a very important thing. So I would urge anybody, if you know you're going to be hunting in an area that may have the potential for chronic wasting disease that you seek out resources from your and guidance from your fish and game which in the area you're going to be at you know we talked uh there's been no at this time no known cases of of the transmission from from deer to human but you know like i i jokingly said earlier i don't want to be the patient zero so right um and and that each of the agencies also has sort of a disposal method that if your animal does test positive that they recommend you follow if if you're not interested in consuming that meat so i don't know that's a question i don't know that i would eat a deer that i knew had chronic wasting disease it's like in the scope of of deer hunting and in my ability to go out and harvest animals i don't think i would want to take that risk for one instance you know yeah you know one good thing, though, of course, uh, a deer can have it and not exhibit the symptoms for a long time. But, you know, most of the deer we see in an area that is not a CWD area are looking pretty healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't really think there's any fear. If you're not in a CWD area, shoot the deer and eat it. Uh, I, I don't think we should mm-hmm. be afraid of that. Uh, I don't want to be a scaremonger over this. No, 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 no. Not at all. But Sorry, in, in I, the I'm areas the where yeah. they know there's a high incidence of CWD, I'd want to definitely want to know. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not discouraging people from hunting in areas where there's CWD either, because you know, just as we talked about, sort of managing that doe population, and we as hunters have to play the role in the management piece. And I think overall, too, harvesting deer with or without. CWD plays into that management piece as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a role for it. I mentioned the one area that has a high incidence of CWD uh, where people aren't buying the doe licenses. If we don't control the deer population through hunting, then uh, states are going to say, well, we're going to have to do something, hire sharpshooters or, or whatever it is. Uh, and then the hunters are going to say, what about us? So, you know, yeah. uh, we need to buy those licenses and we need to shoot deer and we need to, uh, cooperate with the, uh, agencies in order to try to 
to uh, reduce the instance of it and the spread of it and give the scientists, the deer scientists, all the information that we can give them. The more they know, the better they can control the spread. Yeah, I think you, you highlighted um, some of those reasons, but a few other or some of the sort of need to knows and what we should do in in your articles. And uh, if we could just kind of go over that real quick, because mm-hmm. I think it's a good uh, a good closing note is like, a here's what we what we should do as hunters and our role in this whole CWD landscape. Well, programs like this is, is uh, I think, a good starting point. We want to know all we can. Uh, you know, there are no simple answers and there are no, um, there are no, uh, none of us know everything we want to know or should or need to know. So get informed, be humble about it. You know, you read one or two articles, don't think that you know all there is to know because we don't. And, and I want to know a lot more than what I do know. Uh, and I've read a lot on it already. So uh, deer hunters need to get informed. Uh, I think we do need people that can put it onto the bottom shelf so that the average guy, you know, doesn't have to know the science words that are behind the, uh, the mm-hmm. issue. They, they can read and understand and, and make sense of it without being a scientist. You know, we're, we're not all scientists. Um, so, and I think, you know, one of the things, uh, benefits I think that we have here in Pennsylvania is that our deer are not managed by elected representatives. Uh, elected representatives are subject to the whims of, of, uh, whoever has the most money or the most power or the loudest voice. Uh, our deer are managed by uh, an agency that's mostly independent from the state legislature. And so, uh, but the state legislatures do have, have some influence on, on their budgeting and so forth. So um, we need to be talking to the legislators, uh, have them open their minds and realize this is a big problem and it's going to be get, getting bigger if, uh, if we don't stay informed and stay on top of it. So we need to talk to uh, our legislators. And even if we don't know, uh, what to say to them, we should, we should at least say, you know, get involved in this and learn what you can learn about it so that we can make, uh, make good decisions. Agreed. I think one of the biggest thing too, is like two points that, that you pointed out is, is keep hunting, which we've talked to, we've hit on that several times. Like we've got to do that for all the reasons we listed, but also be patient. Like it, this isn't a problem that's going to go away overnight. And I think, right it's it's important that people realize that and have the understanding to be like all right we have to work through this problem not just pretend it doesn't exist and it'll go away right some people say well we should just get rid of all the deer farms that's where it's coming from and if we get rid of the deer farms we solve the problem but no once it's in the wild herd we can get rid of all the deer farms we've still got a problem uh the deer farms are easy to manage as a barnyard yeah, it's you know the same eradication steps sort of as a uh, as mad cow disease. You know, yeah, yeah. Follow the same theories, end up with the same results. And in, in the wild, we we've got so much more to deal with. And uh, I think there's some bigger questions that have to be asked. You know, we mentioned like 
you're looking at affecting animals in the entire North American continent. Um, you know, and even trailing into Central and I'm sure South America at some point. I, I oh, don't yeah. know of any research that's done in those areas, but there's these types of animals exist there too. Sure. Uh, it's any, any antlered animal is going to be susceptible to this. Uh, you know, there's some people that live for elk hunting. Well, it's, it's going to affect elk. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. talk much about mule deer, but mule deer are not as big as whitetails. Uh, so we, we don't hear much about that, but mule deer are at risk too. Uh, moose are at risk all over Canada and in Alaska. I don't think moose have yet had much of a problem because it hasn't spread into those areas yet. But once it does, uh, moose will be, uh, be at risk. So whatever you hunt, you know, hunters love antlers on whatever kind of animal they're on. And all of them are really at risk if we don't take care of this. Yeah. And I mean, you know, talking about us, uh, especially for us, the topic being, you know, um, deer is the main source of food or elk or moose or wild game in general. Like this is a huge effect uh, on those people, you know, like myself, like I rely pretty heavily on on wild game to feed my family. So it's something that's like, it'd be like, you know, the meat shortage that we saw during COVID where somebody walks through and clears out an entire shelf. Well, imagine the landscape changed if, you know, there's a lack of, of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Like what, what, what position are you going to do? Yeah. So I think an approach of being more inclusive with theories versus exclusive and uh approaching it with an open mind and and that last point you hit of being patient i think is is going to be the biggest win here so yeah um well uh i'm pretty happy with our discussion uh that we've had here where uh the clock is ticking down so generally when there's a group of us i kind of run around and give everybody sort of a, a chance for last thought so um, if you have any last thoughts, uh, you want to share with me or with the, with the audience here, now's the time. Well, I guess I want to repeat, you know, I'm, I, I'm not pretending to be an expert. Uh, I'm hoping that I can learn all I can learn and I can put it on the bottom shelf for, for the average person. Uh, I, I, I wish I could take a position and say, I know what causes CWD, but, uh, you know, I'd be running ahead of the scientists if I did that. So, uh, but I, I don't know. Uh, the people that'll criticize me for what I say don't know either. And so let's just look at all of these things and, and, uh, and support the research that's being done and, and encourage research into other things besides just the prion theory. Yep. And, um, what's, a a good way if people have more questions or they want to read more of your work, uh, what's a good way for them to connect with you? Well, I, uh, I have a website, everydayhunter.com. Uh, the name of that says that I'm not the expert hunter. I'm not the elite hunter. You know, I'm, I'm the everyday hunter, just like, you know, 95% of the guys that are out there. Uh, I have the ability to write and, uh, communicate. And I, uh, I hope that I, succeed at that. I, I succeed on some level, I think. Um, but, uh, they can go to that website and see a lot of what I write. Um, I try to, 
I, I don't always succeed at this, but I try to either link there on my blog to everything I write or at least say where something is if it's, if it's not something I can link to. Uh, I had an article come out today uh, on CWD that I made available to you. And uh, I checked just before we went on to record this and, and it hasn't, it's in the newspaper, but the print edition, but usually it's online by late in the afternoon, but it'll probably be tomorrow. Uh, but there'll okay. be a link on my website to that and uh, anything that they want. I do a lot of public speaking, um, mostly sportsmen's wild game dinners at churches. So if people are interested in that, they can contact me through my website. Um, I guess that's about it. All right. And uh, for me, I just I want to thank you for coming on and talking. You know, like I said, I, I, I find the the battle ahead of us with CWD to be something that's not going to be an easy solution. Uh, I hope that it is. And I hope that someone finds an easy solution, but um, until then I, I definitely want to promote the conversation and promote the thought of it uh, in any regard. So it was awesome talking with you and I, I definitely look forward to continuing to read your articles, uh, both CWD related and, and others as well. Um, Sorry. <clears throat> and uh, I just want to thank everybody out there for listening. And uh, as always, so we'll link uh, the article that Steve mentioned whenever that does come out. We'll throw that in our show notes as well as uh, any of his other articles that he recommends uh, on the topic. And as always, head over to social media and uh, check us out. Harvest in Nature, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those uh, avenues and um, whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Uh, hit that five-star button and uh, leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we're doing right. Any topics you want to hear about and conversations that you want to see in the future. And uh, thanks and have a good night. <music>